1: The dharis, they're lower caste people. So because, obviously, the chieftain is from an upper caste, is either generally a kshatriya if they're uh, the rulers, anybody who is considered untouchable, a scheduled caste, they're considered too lowly to be able to do something like wear shoes. And then... The faces have to be covered. I think one reason was also as a form of protection for Mm -hmm. the women. But it's also because they shouldn't have the audacity to be able to make eye contact or, you know, have a persona or, you know, be Hmm. an individual. They are just part of the masses. They're part of basically the dirt.
0: Welcome to The True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora.
2: Welcome back to the True Fiction Project. I am your host, Renita Hora. And I have with me today, Mrinalini Watson. She is a recipient of two Fulbright fellowships. That's right, two, not just one. And her focus is on researching social justice in Rajasthani folktales. Rinalini has been to India specifically to do this and she's on her way there to collect these folktales again. Hi, I'm Rinalini. Welcome to the show. Hi, Renita. So I'm really interested in this area because it so ties into what we do here at the True Fiction Project. And when you talk about going to Rajasthan, which is in the northwestern part of India and collecting folktales, what do you mean by that?
1: So. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you about this because I feel really passionately about this area. People have this perception of folktales as just being children's stories. Just to backtrack, just a slight bit, I got into folktales when I was learning how to translate, and I was working with Rajasthani authors, of uh, a folklorist work. Uh, his name was Vijay Dandetha. And from his folktales that he had, he he'd collected them, and then he wrote, rewrote them. And I realized that he was introducing a social justice aspect to his folktales. And to learn more about those tales, I decided to go to Rajasthan and talk to the people in the villages there to see how much of what he was sh- depicting in his stories was relevant to their lives today because he had written these stories around the time of partition, which was about 75 years ago. And so the last time I was in Rajasthan for my previous Fulbright project, I met with villagers. S- uh, some of them came into the city, but the ones that were actually much more meaningful to me was, uh, were the interviews that I did by going out to the villages and speaking to the storytellers. Now, these Mm. storytellers are traditional storytellers. Their ancestors were storytellers, and they are actually genealogists by trade. It's a community called the Dharis, and they have migrated in from... Pakistan, you can definitely still find them in Pakistan Pakistan, and probably even parts uh, a little further west of Pakistan. But they migrated into India, and what they used to do is they would write the genealogies of their patrons. Their patrons were generally, you know, the smaller kings. What in India we call them the tikanas. Or the landlords, the rows, the just the wealthier families, so they'd write these genealogies down, and then when they were there'd be another occasion, like a birth or a wedding or something significant, the genealogists authorities would be called in to narrate the family's history up to that point and then to incorporate this new event into the history. Once they were done with the official part of the narration, then the rest of the time would be spent telling these folk tales. And each Dhari individual storyteller would have their specific patron. So within a family of Dharis, You know, like the mother would have her patrons, and the son would have his, and the father would have his. So they all had their own patrons, but they also had their own collection of stories. So when I was in the village, I realized that the mother was the one I had gone to visit, and she was telling me her stories, and she was telling me her stories in Marwari, which is, you know, I almost understand the language. But the son, who was more familiar with Hindi, was translating what she was saying into Hindi for me. Mm-hmm. And then he would have his set of stories that he would start off with also. So that's how I realized that they have this very large treasure trove of folk tales.
2: So earlier, you mentioned uh, the Nobel Prize nominee, Vijay Dhan if I'm pronouncing his name right. He was the original translator of some of these stories. And you mentioned that he had begun to explain them with a social justice element. Was this apparent when you went to Rajasthan and you started talking to the community directly?
1: Yes and no. Uh, So... He was a storyteller. He's a much more sophisticated storyteller. He was educated, and the way he presented the social justice angle, it was very apparent in his stories. I mean, mm-hmm. a number of his stories have been made into movies, into Hindi movies now, and they are plays and stuff, and there are actually a lot of plays about women's empowerment today are based in... India itself, are based on his original stories. When I went in and I would speak to the villagers, the social justice angle is kind of woven in. You understand that, oh, this is, you know, like there was when I was talking to one of the women, she said, yeah, we still need to take off our shoes when we walk past the king's or it's not even the king, you know, the like the overlord or the... petty uh, chieftain? In yeah, in that area for that village. But when we walk past the walls of their homes, we have to take off our shoes, and we have to make sure that our faces are completely covered. I mean, we'll get into trouble if our faces are visible and we are walking with shoes on. So they're walking through the the dirt and the muck without anything uh, they're walking bare feet. And this is part of, you know, just a separate conversation, but in the story itself, like one of the stories I hope to share with you, you'll see that the girl child is not uh valued as much mm-hmm. as the sons are valued. And in that specific story it's very apparent, but it's not always that apparent in the stories. You have to have, you know, that awareness to be right. able to identify it.
2: Right. I, I can only imagine that for the storytellers who actually live in Rajasthan, this is so they're so used to living a certain way, they don't necessarily see the dividing lines of social justice or, or, or know what that is. Can you explain, Rinalini, for our Western listeners? Why, for example, in this particular incident, the example that you took, why do the women have to cover their faces? Why do they have to take off their shoes? Why would they get into trouble if they didn't?
1: Okay, so the dharis are, they're lower caste people. So because the obviously the chieftain is from an upper caste, is either Uh, generally a kshatriya, if they're uh, the rulers, anybody who is considered untouchable, a schedule cost, they're considered too lowly to be able to do something like wear shoes. And then the faces have to be covered. I think one reason was also as a form of protection Mm -hmm. for the women But it's also because they shouldn't have the audacity to be able to make eye contact or, you know, have a persona or, you know, be Hmm. an individual. They are just part of the masses. They're part of basically the dirt. Is the attitude that is generally levied against the lower costs, especially the schedule costs, I did not realize, it, and the Tharjis are Muslims. Uh, at least this family were Muslim Tharjis. There are some Hindu Tharjis also, but they're also scheduled caste. And I did not realize that the caste system cut across religions. I, I was didn't realize under that the either. impression. Yeah, I was under the impression that it was only applicable to the Hindus but the Muslims also have their upper castes and their lower costs. Um, so this was a schedule caste Muslim woman, and she still had to follow the same rules that the schedule caste Hindus would have to follow. Very
2: interesting to hear that the caste system exists in Muslim societies as well. I had no idea that that was true. and. If I am to understand correctly, the caste system is not an economic thing, right? This is not a question of rich versus poor, because even within the poorer segments of society, the caste divide still exists. Is that right? That's correct.
1: You know, in modern India, that economic boundary is being breached as far as costs go. But in urban India, and, you know, because you know that there are some leaders now who have been scheduled caste and they would get complete respect from everybody once they have that power they have the political power mm-hmm. but generally and especially in rural india the caste system is very pronounced and you have the upper caste a hindus Like the Kshatriyas and the Jats, and um, you know, I mean, the Rajputs, the Jats, and uh, all of them, they can be poor people, but they still have a higher status than the wealthier scheduled caste people in a village. Mm -hmm. So the caste system actually is in rural India takes greater prominence over the economic divide and what is it
2: about is it just about purity of the blood or what is it that sort of divvies up people into these different castes, even today
1: yeah i haven't researched or looked into it that closely just because growing up in urban india we did not experience it, or maybe in the society that we were in, we did not experience the caste system to the extent that I saw it when I was living in the village. I had spent a couple of months uh, running a literacy camp in the small remote village in India, in Rajasthan. And I was just absolutely floored when I discovered that the girls there and there were only about 15 to 20 girls maximum actually about 19 girls was the max on any one day it was only after I got there that I began to see how stark this caste system was because I know stark is the correct term for it But there were things like the girls who were from the Harijan caste. And these were girls. So the Harijans were the families that, or the Chamars. They were the families that would deal with the dead animals in the village. Mm. And the girls from those families were not being allowed to drink water from the well that was in the area that, we were holding our classes. And I was not aware that this was an issue till one of them complained. But it was the girls from the upper schedule caste families that were preventing the Chamar girls from drinking at the well. So the well wasn't, it was owned by the organization that I was working with. It was not owned by any one of these families. And the girls, they were like Nayak girls. So Nayak is a particular group of Shajulkas girls, uh, families. And those Nayak girls were preventing the Chamar girls from drinking at the water fountain. They also didn't want one day a a gentleman from a Jat family. Now, Jat is, you know... Definitely above the schedule cost. They're on the other side of the cost divide. Mm -hmm. And he comes in with food for his daughter. And I thought, oh, how sweet. Look at him. He's, you know, being so kind. And then one of the women from the NGO I was working with said, "Uh uh-uh, no. If your daughter attends here, you are not allowed to bring food in for her. She has to eat with everybody else because we had provided food for everybody at the camp. I wanted to make sure that they got at least one good meal. And she explained to me, she said, because most of these girls are scheduled cast, this Jat girl's family did not want her to eat in the same space that they were eating in. She didn't have a problem with the Muslim girls. But she had a problem. I mean, she didn't, her family had a problem with the scheduled cost girls and the Chamar girl. So the cost system, it, it was very, very informative. That whole two month experience was very informative about the cost system. Why they still do it is beyond me, but there it is. You know, Still My very goodness. much part of rural India. Yeah,
2: very much part of rural India and talk about social justice. I mean, we, we, it's such a topic here in the West. I don't think we have any idea of what happens, you know, in these other parts of the world. So Rinaldi, please do share with us some of these stories so we can see more about all of this. And now to the premise of the True Fiction Project, which of course is to create fiction Out of non-fiction.
1: There once was a king who had many sons and only one daughter. The king's dying wish was to give a Kathiawari horse to each person who had supported him throughout his reign. So this king is in Rajasthan and Kathiawari is in Gujarat which is a neighboring state. So he felt that giving these horses was the only way his soul could achieve salvation. The son said, father, whenever you die, whether it's today or tomorrow, we will hold a feast in your honor and feed every rao, Mirasi, Dhardi, Brahmin, everyone who has supported you throughout your life, as is our custom. But there is no way that we can get even one Katjawadi horse, let alone 740. You can die whenever you want to, but there is no way we are bringing horses all the way from Katjawadi. There's no way that we can. His daughter Lalan, who was also sitting by his bed, said, I'll get them. Don't worry, father. If my brothers can't get them, that's their problem. Mm -hmm. Please don't worry, father. I'll get them for you. So she dressed in men's clothing, and taking a few soldiers with her, she rode off to Katiaward. When she got there, she fought off the Katiawardi soldiers guarding the horses, captured all the horses, and then instructed her soldiers to take them back to her father. She told them, do not stop for anything. I will deal with the Katiawardis by myself. You'll have to get the horses back to our kingdom. After they left, since she'd been up all night, She lay down under a large banyan tree to rest. Soon enough, the Katiawari army arrived, and seeing the young soldier under the tree, they asked him if he had seen anyone going by with their horses. So she said, I stole your horses. They laughed and said, You? What? How could you have stolen all our horses by yourself? Our entire army is standing here, and you have the guts to tell me that you stole all those horses? She said, don't go there. My guts are not the issue. All those who are stronger than me went ahead with the horses. Because I am weaker, I got left behind. Whatever you need to say, say it to me. The soldier said, I don't have time for your nonsense. I'm going to go get my horses back. Lalan said, fine. I will bring your horses back to you myself if you can meet this one condition. Then she stuck a five-foot-long bala, with a barbed head into the tree trunk. To get the horses back, you or your men have to take that bala out of the tree. The soldiers thought, if this puny little fellow could stick the bala into the tree, then any of us can pull it out. So one by one they tried. Then two and even three of them tried together. But no one could budge the Ballah. They were terrified. If this man was the weakest person in their army, then how strong was the rest of the army? They told Lalan, go back to your king and tell him we are not up to the challenge. This deal will not work for us. Then Lalan stood up, mounted her horse, and used her toes to flick the bala out of the tree and she told them, don't bother to follow me because y'all are just not strong enough to take on her army. When she reached home, she told her father, as you commanded, I brought the Katiawardi horses. Please tell me who you'd like me to give the horses to and how many to each person. The king was shocked. He thought, she's a girl. And she performed a miracle. My sons said, we can't do this. But my daughter went and brought all the Katiawati horses from under the noses of the strongest army in the land. The king issued orders regarding who should receive the horses. After all, the horses had been distributed, Raja al because that's what his name thought. when my sons were born, their births were announced with great pomp and splendor. We beat these metal thalis for them. But when my only daughter was born, the announcement was made by banging on a wicker winnowing basket. If it wasn't for Lalan today, I might as well be without children. Wow. That just rings
2: through and true on so many levels. I mean, that statement, she's a girl. And, you know, the difference that he draws out in the way he announced the birth of his sons and his daughters. I mean, this is exactly what I think is experienced at all levels of Indian society. Yes, we've made progress in sort of the urban environments and so forth, but there's still so much of this. Rinaldi, I have to ask, a story like this, how much of it is true? Does it come from history, actual history? How much of it is steeped in mythology? Or is it pure myth? Or do we even know?
1: You know, Renita, the truth that girl children are valued so much more than boy children are. And women are not respected or valued as much as men are. That cuts across generations, economic levels of society. But as far as the actual story of whether she had gone out to get the Katyawardi horses and come back or not, that is definitely something I will go in and explore when I head back to India, because that's one of the reasons I'm going back on this next Fulbright, is to figure out how much of this is historic, and br- when I do my translations and hopefully publish at some point, bring in the historical backgrounds, bring in you know, the settings, make it more cultural than just pure Folk tale.
2: Yeah, I would imagine, though, that, you know, if these storytellers, this is their second occupation. I say second because the first occupation was the genealogy and recording the genealogy, which in itself is a kind of storytelling. But I would imagine that this being their second occupation, it wouldn't just come out of nowhere, meaning they weren't making the stories up. The idea behind it might be embellished. I mean, that's good fiction, but uh, but it comes from somewhere.
1: Right, and one of the things that I have seen is that the structure, the basic structure of folk tales, and this is you know, folklorists, especially those who collect and research folk tales, are aware that the certain structures are you, you'll find them in folk tales throughout the world, like the Cinderella story. That you have there are about 500 Cinderella stories, at least that are known of. And because you have Cinderella stories from cultures around the world. Hmm. So these basic structure is there and you'll find them in communities everywhere, everywhere where they have this, where they do this oral narrative. Asian cultures are very rich in folklore, as are a lot of indigenous cultures throughout the world, Africa, America, everywhere. Uh, And it's the indigenous cultures that have a lot of it. Even contemporary cultures do have their version of folktales. But when I got back from the village one time, I was, I just heard the last story my storyteller told me was about a story where... There was this man who went to seek his fortune and he encounters three obstacles along the way. And when he finally gets to the prophet or destiny or whatever she's called, she or he is called in the different stories, the hero goes and asks destiny or the fortune teller, whoever, I have this question for you. But in addition to my question, I have these questions that I received from three other people who helped me along my journey. So could you give me the answers? And he takes these answers back. And on his way back, he gives them the answers, whether they're individuals or, you know, like in the story that this storyteller told me, there was a king, there was a crocodile, and then there were three trees who had questions for him, right? Right. And every time he gives an answer, he gets wealthier. He gets hmm. something out of it. So it's the reward he gets. And when he gets back home, he is, you know, his problems being solved, and it's been helped along by uh, this the stuff that he gets on his journey coming back. Now, when I got home from the interview that day. I was just going through my messages, and I noticed that somebody had sent me a link for a folktale. And this folktale was from, it wasn't from Rajasthan, but it was a local storyteller from India. And it was the same story t- structure. I mean, they had different obstacles. they were The destination was different. The story, the hero was different. And I thought... I just got this story from the village. And I know this old lady who basically has never left her village didn't Mm. get the story from somebody else. And this man in an urban part of India didn't get the same story from the same person, right? I mean, from my villager. Mm. And so I started doing some research and found an almost identical story structure. And this is just doing a little bit of online research from, I think it was a Chinese story that had the same story structure. So these structures are evident in societies throughout the world, and it's because folktales are a way for people to deal with their problems, Mm -hmm. and people around the world have similar problems. And I think that's one of the things that I want to bring out, is how when people around the world have similar problems, they're using similar strategies to resolve these problems. Why do we think we are so different, so special? You know, we really should be getting along a lot better than we do, given the fact that we are so similar.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that, Mrinalini the fact that folktales are a way for people to deal with their problems and that these problems are universal. It's the same problems in different parts of the world, different cultures, same deal. That was Rinalini Watson. She is a Fulbright scholar focusing on social justice in Rajasthani folktales and she has two graduate degrees, one in linguistics and another in translation studies, both of which help her in her anthropological work. Here at the True Fiction Project, we are always looking for great stories that make for compelling fiction. So if you have a great story or know somebody who does, or if you are a writer who would like to contribute, then please do get in touch with us at ranita.com forward slash contact.
0: Thank you for listening to the True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com.